everybody, welcome to today's Permanente Docs chat. It's actually our last chat of uh, 2022, but don't worry, we'll be back in 23, but bigger and better than ever. I'll talk about that later. Uh, I'm your host, Alex McDonald. I practice family and sports medicine here in Fontana, California, as most of you know. Uh, thanks all for joining in uh, for wherever you may be listening or watching. Um, it's December 1st was World AIDS Day, and as a result, I'm really excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Colin Fields, who is a family physician um, at the Washington Permanente Medical Group. He's also the medical director of their government relations and public policy program, as well, and most importantly, uh, the quality medical director of their HIV and PrEP uh, program. Uh, so we are going to jump right in. If you guys have questions, please feel to drop them in the in the chat uh, or post them in the comment section if you're streaming this um, on on Facebook, and we'll go from there. So, Dr. Fields, thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's let's just jump right in. So, so tell us um, tell us who you are and, and what you do. <laughs> well, Colin Fields, he him pronouns. Um, <clears throat> I like you said, I'm a family physician here at Washington Permanente Medical Group. Um, for the most part, I practice in Seattle at our Capitol Hill campus, but I also uh, rotate to other clinics outside of Seattle. Uh, where I see people living with HIV. And then I also uh, work a lot with gender diverse patients, see a lot of transgender members here in Washington. Great. Um, well, tell us, tell us what you've see, been seeing recently with, um, you know, gender diverse patients and, and HIV and HIV care. We, we know that pandemic has upended a lot of the way we provide care as well. Um, anything specific regarding, regarding this patient population? Well, I think that there's actually a couple of ways to answer that question. Um, one would be the effect of the pandemic on HIV care. But I also think that it's the inverse of that, the effect that HIV care had on the pandemic itself. And I'll, I'll answer the latter first, which is, um, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, there are a lot of activist groups like ACT UP, um, which... Uh, advocated for access to early access to medications that were investigational in order to reduce the risk of death potentially from uh, HIV or an incure at that time in, um, in untreatable disease. And as a result of that, that the FDA developed emergency use authorization. And so, you know, we benefited from ACT UP, even if that wasn't the intent of, of the time. But by being able to have access to like in an unprecedented way to uh, vaccines for COVID-19. Um, so I think that HIV had, you know, a lot of consequences um, for the pandemic. And then I think that the pandemic's effect on HIV, we definitely, I definitely noticed some improvements in some ways of being able to have access to talking with patients via video when you have patients that are in lots of different geographic areas that may not have a lot of specialists in that particular field, it's been really nice to be able to connect with patients virtually throughout the year when I'm not there physically. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it comes to PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, the pandemic definitely had an effect with uh, people social, social isolation and, and stopping their PrEP prescriptions. And we had a lot of PrEP pauses at that time, but patients uh, you know, after 2020 started to take prep again. 
Yeah. Try, try saying prep pauses five times fast. I can't even, <laughs> I can barely say it once. Um, well, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't necessarily know that history about the, the EUA emergency use authorization and the history there. I think that's really um, uh, a really fascinating uh, uh, point. And we could probably go down the rabbit hole of, of talking about sort of public health and, and sort of the, how shall I say this politely? Um, the 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 slow degradation of our public health infrastructure really since the eighties, um, with AIDS and HIV really probably being the the last major public health issue since now COVID. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Um, or if you want to put your health policy hat on for a second and, and share some of your thoughts there as well. Well, I think that you know we definitely saw during the pandemic that that a lot of resources. Everybody's resources went towards the pandemic. Right. And I think in terms of public health resources, anything extraneous like HIV or PrEP definitely went towards the pandemic. And I think that that had a lot of implications for ability to reach out to patients, the ability to monitor uh, patients who were maybe not engaged in care or did not have suppressed viral loads. And so I, I think that there was definitely social impact, especially for HIV, um, on not having a robust network of resources in the public health sector to be able to manage such a huge emergency in at the same time that you're managing all the other chronic diseases. Yeah, I think I, that certainly is only so many so many resources to go around. That that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I was sort of reflecting when we were preparing for this talk when I was in medical school 20 something years ago. In fact, I started 20 medical school 20 years ago, exactly this year. Um, you know, we heard a lot, there was, there was more public awareness about HIV and AIDS and it's really sort of fallen to the back burner at this day, uh, at this stage. And the, the impact obviously of HIV and AIDS in our communities and the health of our nation is, is still prevalent. Um, but it's not nearly as, as, high on the, on the, and sort of the awareness of our populations and, and just the, the public in general too. Can you, can you share some thoughts about how people are now, you, you mentioned, you know, treatable versus curable prior. Uh, can you tell us about some of the advances uh, regarding HIV and, and the treatability, but also still how it's impacting the health of our nation and our communities at this point? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think th this generation or that like, one of our younger generation, Gen, Gen Z, mm -hmm. was born after 1996. And the first medications that, you know, were fairly tolerable and effective for HIV, really the marker for that was 1997. And I think that once we started having like the cocktail um, at the time, um, and we started seeing less uh, effects of HIV in hospital systems, in clinical systems, that this news story kind of ended. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we still have about 35,000 new cases of HIV in the United States every year. Um, you know, we still have about 1.2 million people living with HIV in the United States. Um, and so there's still a lot of, of transmission of HIV. And HIV was never really uh, given the definition of a pandemic. But I don't know how it's not a pandemic. It still has ongoing transmission. And we still have the challenges of breaking that transmission um, in order to reduce the overall viral load within the public. Um, in order, because for, tr for HIV, treatment is really prevention. We know that people who are treated for HIV and have undetectable viral loads are unable to transmit virus. So 
we have a pathway to kind of eradicate HIV, but uh, we still don't have a robust ability to do so. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. One of my one of my colleagues actually um, two years ago, when we were sort of in the throes of the of the pandemic, actually wrote a really interesting uh, article and a reflection back to uh, when they were in training in the in the eighties, actually, and and how. HIV and AIDS really, especially when it first uh, be- became uh, uh, more prevalent, nobody knew exactly what was happening. And a lot of those same concerns and fears that happened with COVID happened when HIV and AIDS really first um, w- was recognized in the, in the 80s. Um, and a lot of us have sort of forgotten about that, I think, um, at this point, you know, 50 years later. Um, when I had, oh, sorry, I had a ahead. number of, of patients who I think were fairly triggered by the onset of the pandemic. I remember when the the um, boat that docked in um, San Francisco early in the pandemic, there were a lot of patients who, you know, really were quite triggered by that event and the, you know, need to try to sequester people from the public. Um, so, yeah, I think that we all lived through a really consequential historical moment, but for some of these patients, they lived through yet another pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting to experience with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we have a question here in the, in the chat. Um, what's the one thing that you wish young people knew about HIV and how best to have physicians be the ones to offer that, that information or that piece of advice? Well, I had um, a patient a couple, it was a couple of years ago now, who was 22. And he asked me, uh, if does untreated chlamydia lead to HIV? And I I just was really taken aback by that, because um, I think that we've all had a lot of um, experience now in what viruses are. But I think it's important to just um, educate the your patients about the availability of PrEP um, to screen them for if they uh, should be offered PrEP. And I think it's really important to break down some of our internal biases about this. I think when we talk about PrEP, we always think about it as for men who have sex with men, mm-hmm. but PrEP should be offered to heterosexual people too, especially if they've had a recent STD or they're having unpro- you know multiple unprotected partners they too are eligible for pre-exposure prophylaxis to help reduce their risk of HIV. Um, And I think it's really important too that we start educating more of our pediatric and adolescent and family medicine providers um, about the conversations around pre-exposure prophylaxis in, uh, you know, teens and young 20-somethings. People who have recently started, you know, becoming sexually active, a lot of times we have the conversation around birth control. But I Mm -hmm. think that we really need to have that knee jerk reflex about, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis too, and having easy conversations with them about the availability of that type of medicine to reduce their risk of HIV. That actually is the perfect segue into my next question, actually. So you must have been reading ahead. Uh, and by the way, for the record, no chlamydia does not cause HIV, just, just to be clear, <laughs> although this audience probably knows that. Um, uh, so the USPSTF, or the United Service Preventative Service Task Force, uh, recently came out with a new recommendation regarding, regarding pre-exposure pro- prophylaxis. Um, can, you, can you share these recommendations? And, and just, again, you already touched on this, sort of the importance of educating physicians and patients regarding PrEP. Uh, I have a lot of patients who are on PrEP, um, many of whom ask actually, um, uh, particularly, you know, it's, it's, 
in the, the men who have sex with men population probably tends to be a little bit more common knowledge. Um, so, so they tend to come in asking for it, but I have a lot of heterosexual individuals who are engaged in high risk behavior. And we have that conversation and, and, and I've started them on prep right here in, in my family medicine office too. So it's really, when I first heard about it, I was kind of scared, but one of my colleagues kind of helped talk me through it. I did a couple, uh, attended a couple uh, CME sessions and it's really pretty straightforward. So um, tell us about the USPSTF recommendations. So the USPSTF recommendation is actually a grade A recommendation, which I feel like for USPSTF, grade A is like breathing and drinking water. Um, so I feel like it's, it's unusual to get a grade A recommendation from USPSTF. Um, I don't know if I could uh, say exactly the criteria, but really um, it's recommending people who have had recent um, STDs, specifically gonorrhea, and syphilis um, have sexual partners of unknown status, um, sexual partners who are living with HIV but do not have an undetectable viral load, uh, people who are uh, sharing intravenous drugs, um, and then uh, people who are having more than, I think it's more than three partners in a year. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, oh, it, it people who, um, uh, maybe exchanging sex, uh, for, you know, money or other, other things. Um, so, uh, it's actually quite a, a, a fair number of people and it's not as necessarily specific to just MSM, although men who have sex with men, uh, should definitely, uh, be screened for eligibility for PrEP. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the thing. Grade A recommendation means you should absolutely do this virtually all the time. Um, and so I think it's in, in, incorporated into our thought processes as primary care physicians, you know, we're kind of going down the list. Um, and, and this should probably be one of those things. I think a lot of times, uh, particularly with the residents I work with, we teach them to sort of, you know, ask if they're sexually active with, with men, women, or both. And then they give us the answer. We don't necessarily go down that road of, okay, then, then what, if, if they are at higher risk, uh, be, for any number of, of behavioral activities as well too. Um, uh, you know, the, the White House um, recommended earlier this month uh, that really, and you kind of mentioned this to really, we could, we have the, the pathway to sort of end the HIV epidemic in the United States and really around the world. What, what, <laughs> that sounds like a heavy lift. What really needs to, needs to happen to make that a reality? So <clears throat> there are about, 1.2 million people in the United States living with HIV, but there's about 13% of them that do not know that they're living with HIV. And so I think the first one is that we should just have universal screening if possible, um, health maintenance alerts for people who have not had uh, screening for HIV at least once in their lifetime. And people who are sexually active should be screened more frequently than just once in a lifetime. Um, we did implement some of those here at Kaiser Permanente Washington in summer of 2022. And we've actually picked up about two cases since then as a result of that health maintenance alert. So it does work. I mean, I don't know the number needed to, to screen, but we have been picking up some cases. Um, we also need to identify um, people who are at risk of HIV based on their behaviors and offer them pre-exposure prophylaxis like we talked about. But of the people who do know that they're living with HIV in the United States, only about 70% of them are engaged in medical care and even less are taking antiretrovirals and even less 
are fully suppressed. So augmenting those numbers by getting people engaged in care, um, offering them antiretroviral therapy, and then trying to follow up with them and make sure that their viral load suppresses would be the way of mitigating risk for the public. And, you know, fortunately in the United States, we're seeing a decrease in HIV year over year, um, but we're not necessarily seeing that risk for other STDs. Those, the rest of them are all going up. <laughs> right, so, exactly. Well, and, that, and I think that's something that goes to back to my earlier comments too, about how the younger generations, they don't, you know, they're not too worried about STDs uh, like we did when maybe I won't date myself. I won't date you. I'll date myself. Like when I was a kid, I heard about it a lot in high school, um, you know, because at that point, that was sort of when, you know, uh, a, a, a highly heart medications became more available, too. So um, I think it's just a, a, an awareness and a, a bit of a culture shift, I think, for some of our younger individual, individuals as well, too. Yeah. And there's a couple of documentaries I think are really great to direct patients to. There, um, How to Survive a Plague won the Academy Award in 2013, mm-hmm. um, which was a documentary that followed a lot of the members of ACT UP, and it was really well done. So when people are kind of curious, I try to direct them to, to documentaries like that to just because it is now kind of a historical marker and they don't necessarily have all the context for it. Yeah. What's, what's the name of that documentary again? It's called How to Survive a Plague. How to Survive a Plague. All right. I'll have to, I have not seen that. I'll check that out myself for sure. Um, another, another question here in the chat here, you mentioned sort of the screening tools we have, uh, you, you implemented there at KP Washington and obviously KPing a closed loop system that sort of wraps around the patient for all the different uh, healthcare services is pretty unique. Uh, do you think that Kaiser Permanente is sort of ahead of the curve in the rest of the industry when it comes to, to screening and, and treating HIV? Um, and, and are there still gaps that need to be done and I guess a third part, which I'll, I'll add on, is how can we help sort of lead that charge as well? I mean, the answer to the first question is yes. I think Kaiser Permanente is always ahead of the curve, and particularly with HIV care. Uh, Kaiser Permanente has an interregional group that uh, includes all of the regions um, and their HIV teams. I think that Kaiser Permanente has you know, a robust ability to collect data. And as such, we know that our viral load for the patients who are in our system is pretty well suppressed. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, one of the best things that we're able to do is to demonstrate our abilities to implement programs and the data that we're able to collect as a result to show the outcomes. And so I think that we can lead by showing other systems what's been effective for for treatment for our patients. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the, uh, the the next question here is is uh, talks a, b- a bit about uh, social media and sort of my my interest and my passion of social media too. My my dovetail or come through here. Uh, you know, you you wrote a column recently talking about reaching out to this next generation about raising awareness about understanding of the importance of um, reducing sexually transmitted diseases and, and PrEP as well. Tell us tell us more about kind of some of the things you talked about in that article and, and why do you think this is important? I think it's about meeting people where they're at. Um, I don't think that we have in our own system the most robust uh, presence uh, on social media. I think that it would be worthwhile to develop just pretty quick snapshots of what particular diseases like HIV are and what 
might put one at risk and then what you could do to help alleviate that risk. Um, I think it would be a good way of disseminating information to a population that isn't necessarily going to get their information from other sources. So mm -hmm. we might as well go to them with useful, vetted, evidence-based recommendations that we could just boil down into quick snapshots. Right. Re reaching people where they are versus waiting them for to come to us. And we, we may be waiting a very, very long time with <laughs> some of our younger patients as well, too. Um, great. Well, this is a, this has been really helpful and really informative. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, last, last question here, unless I know someone dropped something in the chat last minute here. Um, what, what makes you most proud to be a Permanente physician? Well, I mean, I came to Kaiser Permanente because I wanted to operate in an integrated system. I really uh, appreciate the robust knowledge of my colleagues and it's not just my colleagues here in Washington, it's really around the country. I mean, I think it just really leads to a much more um, substantial understanding of what's happening in medicine. And I think that it shows in our ability to deliver care to patients. Yeah, no, very, very well said. Um, I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree. Well, Dr. Fields, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and are not meant to represent the views of the Permanente Federation, the Permanente Medical Groups, or Kaiser Permanente.